This is unstructured. Hey everybody, I'm super excited to have back Dr. Robert King, and we're hoping we can maybe do a few of these because he's covered such a wide range of topics, everything from uh, female orgasms to spree killers to, uh, he's got a paper coming out on bare knuckle fighting, I believe. Now we first met um, Dr. King in episode 88, so you guys may want to check that out, and we're going to cover a little bit of what we did then and then hopefully spawn off into another topic today. How are you doing today, Rob? I'm very well. Merry Christmas. Thanks for inviting me back. Oh, great to have you. Now, from what I understand, your Spree Killer paper that we mentioned before has actually been published now? Yes, got uh, got, got some reviews back, which were very helpful. And I've incorporated their uh, clarifications and um, a couple of um, modifications. And it's uh, it's coming out in uh, evolutionary behavioral science sometime next year. Awesome. Now, from what I understand, that was kind of a contentious paper to get through. <laughs> Can we go into a little bit of what challenges you face? Because I think a lot of people think that academics maybe just spawn an idea and throw it out there and, and just sit on their laurels of brilliance and we all just accept it. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, it'd be nice if that was true. <clears throat> um, well, at, at, at its best, peer review is a conversation uh, where the, the, the peer reviewers who you, you don't know who they are come back with things saying, you know, you haven't thought of this or have you considered that or someone else actually came up with this idea and you have a back and forth and sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong and sometimes they, they pick up on, uh, on on mistakes that you've made and, and all of that should be um, sort of a mutually supporting thing. Sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes it can be a lot more contentious um, and occasionally I've got... Uh, some, I, and I, I, obviously, I don't know who, who reviewers are, but occasionally reviewers can get a bit personal um, and uh, they can they can sometimes work out who you are and they can get quite cross. Sometimes they, I think some some people get cross because they, they wish they'd had an idea. And uh, it, this doesn't really happen in my field, but I know in genetics there have been some real scandals where some people have had papers rejected. And then it turns out that one of the reviewers has gazumped the idea and they come out with it a month later. Now, I want to stress that's never happened to me. And it, you know, I, I don't publish in the kind of field where it's it's so fast moving that that could happen. But there are there are some glitches in peer review. But uh, there's there's not we've got no there's nothing to replace it with. Uh, there are people say it will sort of tell you that peer review is broken, and and invariably their their model for replacing it is is something that's that's much sketchier because we we don't we don't have a teacher's edition we don't have God's edition of the universe and we can sort of look in the back for the answers. So all we can do is sort of check each other's sums, check that we've done due diligence, um, check that um, you know that 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 what we say is actually supported by the evidence, and yeah, just put a little more grain of sand on the on the on the mountain. Of knowledge um it's a little bit different in in maths there are there are certain fields of pure maths where it's so abstract that there's about a, a, a couple hundred people on the planet who could understand a particular paper and they tend to exchange their papers within within a very small circle with one another so they do it kind of different do you do you face challenges because i i think you've stated before that you work in sort of a bridge between the natural sciences and the social sciences and that can cause friction is that true yes the fundamental issue is that human beings do not like to accept the fact that they're just another critter which is a, the phrase i think martin daly the um the biologist used and the same rules apply to us as apply to every other creature um we are special of course we are but that every other creature is special as well that's what species means special uh, it doesn't mean that the rules don't apply but we kind of resist this because we're self-conscious and uh, we, we we don't like it you know to be, be reminded of that fact and so things that 
things that explore that kind of territory, like, for example, our status acquisition or our competitiveness or um, humans having sex is something that's always contentious. You know, we're, we're the only creature that wears clothes, for example. So we, we're all there's a natural sort of covering up thing that we do uh, to, to sort of demarcate ourselves from other other beasts. But we are we, we have the, you know, the same rules. Speaking of which, um, that's part of the basis of the spree killer paper right is that so there's two types one who gains i guess um yeah and then one who loses and it's two different ages you want to break that down real yes quickly? sure so the uh, the thing we found these so we there there are a horrifyingly large number of of, of spree killings happening in the uh, in the united states we decided to use the united states because it, it would control for um, access to weapons uh we're pretty confident that this happens all over the globe but most of the time people don't have access to the kinds of weapons that allow them to, to put these things into practice so they use knives or um malays use, use crease knives as um, use, um, cosmic i think but all that means that the, the numbers and all the rest of it can't be controlled for so there was there was that aspect plus america has a really good free press um and a, a really good free press means that they report on all of these things so we had a highly conservative uh, data uh, creation system which um my colleague uh, Nadia Butler put together. Um, she made sure that um, it was only from uh, multiple sources that were all reputable that uh, that, that uh, we, were, we were collecting these data, and we put the data through uh, a thing called um, latent class analysis, which is a statistical technique where you can use lots of different types of data, turn the statistical crank, and then it will will show you underlying patterns. And the interesting pattern we found was that there were two very different types of spree killer. The the younger ones tended to be school refusers, tended to have mental health issues, tended to have been in trouble with the law. They're on a road to reproductive nowhere. Uh, and the older ones tended to have jobs, have families, um, although they're often in the process of losing them or had just lost them. There was some big status loss that was uh, associated with it. And these these people were chalk and cheese. They, they Apart from the fact that they both went into public and took it out on, on members of the public, there was nothing similar in their personalities. And that was interesting because the early lot, men's, men, men's reproductive is very tightly linked to their status and the younger ones uh, were really on the path to to acquiring no status at all uh, the older ones had acquired status but they were losing it the other interesting thing was the younger ones tended to survive the experiences although often they didn't because the, you know, the police sometimes shoot them whereas the older ones tended to die um, and were, could also often be described as uh, as committing suicide by cop so that's interesting so there's there's, there's an interesting pattern there and we've got a, have i spoken about the follow-up paper we have a follow-up paper, which I'm hmm. trying to get into publishable form at the moment, where the the, 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 the first the first type uh, is essentially they're, they're saying that they are they're um, demonstrating their their prowess and they're acquiring status, and in a way that makes us very uncomfortable. We don't like the idea that that people could acquire status by by killing other people, and it's a very disturbing thing. Um, but unfortunately, there is an audience for it, and we we found that audience. You know, there is there is an audience, and online allows us access to them, who idolise these 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 types of people, uh, fetishise them really to a to a huge degree. In the DSM, they're they're called hybristophiles. Uh-huh. So these are people who fetish um, uh, killers and uh, rule breakers generally. And there's a specific subtype within that that we've identified who seem to be really quite pathologically interested in the killing itself, not just in the celebrity. Can we pin, put a pin in that? Because I do want to circle back to that. Mm. Um, sure. Do you think that the press perhaps exacerbates the effects of these spree killings? And I ask this because I know they deliberately don't publish suicide names. Yes. And that has yeah. helped um, actually um, shrink the number of concurrent suicides. 
do you, I'm not really in favor of censorship, but Mm. if um, someone does not achieve the notoriety, would that perhaps Mm -hmm. dissuade some of these? Um, Yes, is is a blunt answer. I uh, I, I don't know how many, um, but since some of them are clearly trying to get notoriety, some degree of self-censorship by the the press is at least arguable. I mean, I'm very tentative about stuff, stuff like this because a free press is a really important thing and there are certainly bad effects, but it's such a, an important thing to have that you have to put up with some of the bad effects. Is this one of the things that we have to put up with? I really don't know. Um, I'm genuinely agnostic about it, but I, there, I think there's certainly a case to be made for it um, because some of these people, there, there's no question that some of them idolize some of these other killers and leave stuff in their diaries about wanting to be like them and all the rest of it. Now they, these things existed before there was, um, there was press about it. Mm-hmm. So no one's, no one's, that the press are the only people responsible but it is possibly a um what's what i'm looking for um a risk factor and as you as you pointed out it's, it's certainly a risk factor in uh, in suicides we we get suicide clusters we, we had one here in ireland not so long ago uh, where um it wasn't that long ago there was there was one there's a town just down the road from me um called middleton where they almost every street lost a young man at one point i mean it was it was truly horrific you have people coming and studying it and we are we're, we're not it's very difficult to get a grip on what's happening here uh we're not quite sure what the factors are we there, there's a bunch of risk factors and they're, they're, they're fairly well understood things like economic uh sudden sudden economic uncertainty losing jobs losing relationships all the rest of it none of that allows us to identify why a particular individual at a particular time suddenly has had enough um and uh, we're scratching our heads over it is the honest answer now moving back to the hybristophiles are you familiar with um, Chris Watts, the man from uh, Colorado who murdered his pregnant wife and uh, two daughters and put them in cans? Uh, I, I'm not familiar with a particular case. I've, I've studied other ones, similar ones. Um, tell, tell me about that one. <laughs> he's um, starting to get fan mail or has been getting fan mail. And I'm yes. curious if – would that qualify as a spree killing, a family killing? I, I'm not sure. I mean, he seemed to just want to get rid of everybody to have a lover. But I didn't know where that might fall in because I'm trying to get a handle on the spectrum. No, we, we, we specifically excluded those because they're, they're studied under another rubric. Um, and uh, the, the, these guys who kill their own families, um, uh, they, they're, a, they're a diff- possibly a different kind as well or possibly a subtype. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Um, um, the, 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 we have a few of these things as well. The, 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 we, we use the FBI's uh, definition of spree killing. Um, and that that um, that that one uh, can include killing family members, but has to include killing strangers as well. Whereas the the familiar sides that you're you're talking about, they just kill family members. I mean, arguably that's a false distinction. I I'm once again I'm, I'm sorry to be vague. I'm I'm quite agnostic about whether that's a genuinely useful distinction. I suspect it might not be, and I suspect that our older our type two spree killers actually fall into the familiar side pattern, um, but have sort of gone beyond that and and uh, decided to hurt other people as well. But that's uh, I'm I'm speculating at that point. <laughs> and I think I asked you before, um, because I've heard the term mass killings. I've heard the term spree killings mm. and a spree killing seems to be a type of mass killing. Or is that an unfair statement? Uh, spree killings are when it's it's five, five or more people in, in, in at least two locations. Oh. Uh, so that's that's what. Yeah. So um, so 9-11 actually doesn't count as a, as a spree killing, I think, technically. And we also specifically excluded ones that had obvious political or religious uh, components to them. Jim now, Jones. Somebody, sorry? Like Jim Jones would just be a mass killing. Yeah, yes, it would count as a mass killing. And then there may be some other interesting patterns there. I, it's such an extreme thing that it, it allows us to uh, allows us to measure things in a way that um, 
other kinds of speculations don't. People have to people have to really be convinced of the rightness of their actions to kill themselves or other people, um, and so that that allows a certain amount of traction on on the data. But um, when it comes to things like the Jim Jones, the, the death cults in general, I mean these these are fascinating, and we we don't really know why this happens, but it does every so often, and there seems to be cross cultural, and it seems to um, seems to often have not often but not always have a sexual component. It certainly did with Jones, it did with the Waco people, um, you know the Branch Davidians, and it does with some other some of these other millenarial cults where they often cluster around a very charismatic male figure who's often having sex with a lot of the, um, particularly the younger women uh, in the group. Um, so there's, the, there's, I, mean, I realize this makes me sound like I think sex is at the root of everything. Um, but isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Like most things, yeah. I mean, that, that's funny because it's like you're defending yourself, but I, I think in actuality, isn't, isn't that true? That, that we really care about, um, was it fight, flight, or, you know, I forget how they say, when we come across someone, um, are they a threat? Are they a sexual partner? Mm-hmm. Or are they? Are we indifferent to them? Yeah. So it's yes, feeding, uh, fighting, um, flight, or finding a mate. Yes. So the uh, the four Fs. Um, yeah. We're, we're, yeah. We're, it, it, I mean, in a lot of ways, Freud um, sort of gave the game away by saying everything was about sex, and he, he still had one of the smartest ideas any human ever had, which was that human beings are the only animals pretending that they're not animals, which I still think is one of the most brilliant insights a psychologist had. The trouble is that it made a lot of people think that everything was kind of symbolically about sex, mm. which is a clever idea, but it just turns out not to be true. But that doesn't mean that his, 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 his key realization from Darwin was that everything gets cashed out in terms of reproduction. But that doesn't mean that each and every act is itself um, a sort of symbolic act of reproduction. It just means that they, they all of them, um, they, the, 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 the coin of the realm is, is, is reproductive fitness. And he was right about that. Uh, and it was an ingenious idea. Is that the sometimes a cigar is just a cigar? Yes. Um, I mean, it was it was such it's an ingenious idea that that the rest of what was going on was sort of symbolically about sex. Um, but it just turns out not to be completely. Uh, it not, turns out not to be like that. But I mean, once again, Freud is one of these people that people hate without actually reading. And it's partly because he's one of these people who's charismatic and he inspires a certain kind of follower. And I think what, what often happens is that what people don't like are the followers. And they don't necessarily go back and read the original person. And that's, you know, that, that's that's a common pattern with human beings. Um, I mean, how many how many people actually disagree with with what Christ said in the Bible rather than the way Christians behave, for example? You know, I'm not being religious, but you know, I mean, how many people sure. actually go and study the Buddha or um, study Christ or study Freud or any of these or read Marx for that matter. Um, you know, Marx famously said one thing I'm sure of is I'm not a Marxist. Have you um, heard of uh, Jonathan Haidt? Yes, I know, I, I know Jonathan a bit. Um, only only as an online person. I'm, I'm part of his Heterodox Academy. Okay, I was going to say his happiness. Um, we, uh, we've exchanged. Mm. Um, yes, I've, I've I've read I've read stuff. Um, he's yeah he's he's, he's um, inter- interesting uh, interesting trajectory. He started off as a moral philosopher, uh, and that was my background. I started off in moral philosophy as well, um, but took a rather different path. And he he decided he was good. He, uh, moral philosophy was was insufficiently empirical for him, so he went down the empirical psychology route. And he's I think fleshed fleshed that stuff out very interestingly. Well worth well worth reading. Um, his uh, his moral foundations theory is one that. Um, 
that my, myself and um, and some colleagues have, have used in a couple of studies ourselves. And I think it's very insightful. It uh, gives, gives an awful lot of uh, of meat to, to understanding why humans have a tough time communicating with each other. Yeah, and I brought him up because I feel like um, his happiness hypothesis matches a lot of what you're saying about the teachings of Buddha, the teachings of Christ, et cetera, et cetera, that we're rediscovering these things now in pop psychology mm. that have already been known for 2,000, 3,000 years, just in yes. old texts. Yeah. Um, have you heard anything about the studies where they scan people in MRI, things that James Fallon is doing, for example, and just testing them, like they might show them nude pictures to see how they react, and they check the pupil dilation, the brain scans, things of that sort. What are your thoughts on all that? I mean, I, I know about it in general terms. It's not, it's not a thing I do myself. Um, I've got colleagues who, uh, who stick people in brain scanners and see which bits light up when you show them various things. Um, what's, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure what the question is. Are you, um, are you, is, is, there some, is there some sort of specifically really sort of new uh, surprising finding? Well, what I find surprising is a lot of theories um, of, you know, how people react, like... Um, I think I'm going to go back to height. Have you heard about the writer and the elephant, for example? Oh, right. Yes, the, the, the old uh, story of Rumi and the elephant, that uh, everybody thinks the elephant is a different thing because they come at it from different angles, that, that old idea. Uh, well, yeah, that's the rope. No, um, the writer and the elephant is essentially the... Oh, uh, yes. Yes, sorry. Um, yes, sorry, I misheard you. Yes, um, so the, yes, the idea that you've got this sort of this large emotional engine with a with a kind of uh, a sort of rational rider on top of it um, that that occasionally sort of can can push it one direction or the other. Yeah, sure. Um, yes, I mean that's one of the one of the shocking things about a lot of brain research is that um, quite often the the story that we're telling ourselves is ex post facto, isn't it? So I think some of the most striking stuff for me was uh, goes back quite a few years now with the split brain patients uh, where you, you, their brains have been cut in half because of severe epilepsy and they've got a right half of the brain that doesn't know what the left half is doing. Have you seen these kind of studies? I haven't heard those. And I heard of should... Descartes' error, I think, with the railroad spike guy, but I think that's different. Oh, Phineas Gage, yeah. Um, so, that I mean, that's interesting too. That's, that's Damasio's book. Um, and that's, that's well worth a look. But this, this, was, um, this was work done by Mike Gazzaniga. Um, and you have these people who... They've got uh, they have very severe epilepsy. This is before you could treat it with drugs. So you cut through the corpus callosum, which is the bit that sticks the two hemispheres together. But that means you've now got a, a visual field. So the left visual field goes to the right side of the brain. The right visual field goes to the left side of the brain. And you've now got a left side of the brain that doesn't know what the right side is doing. Typically, it's the left side that can talk. So what this means, you can show things to the left-hand side and you can ask the person what they've seen and they'll tell you. If you show it to the right-hand side, they won't know what it is, or at least they can't tell you. But if you ask them to guess, they'll guess it right. If you ask them to draw it, they can draw it with their right hand but not their left hand. And once they've seen what they're drawing, they then pretend that they knew it all along. Now, some of these experiments are just so mind-blowing. And then you suddenly realize that that's all of us. That's what we're all doing all the time. It's just that when you set up these people in this this unusual experiment you can suddenly you wouldn't know i mean you you could be talking to someone with a split brain now and there'd be no obvious way of knowing and you, once you realize this and you realize that there's this thing called confabulation you know, which is what a lot of patients have when they have things like neglect there there's a whole visual f chunk of the visual field that, that just goes away or they think an arm doesn't belong to them or something like that and you realize that confabulation is just the norm for human beings creating a coherent narrative out of the out of the sensory input is what a, is a thing that brains do so given that 
is actually nothing short of a minor miracle that most of the time we agree on what what reality is um because we're, we're we are literally you know that this is my problem with things like the postmodernists saying that you know things are a social construction or whatever they don't know the half of it i mean they're not going nearly far enough it's far more radical than any of the social constructionists could possibly um uh, allow for given their ontology i mean it's much much more radically constructive than just all oh, society you know has come up with a few words and all, all agreed on the meanings we are radically constructing the world every second uh, and so the fact that most of the time we can get some kind of coherent shared reality is just gobsmackingly amazing frankly is that um demonstrated in the the principles where when we see something we actually have to have our brains tell us what we saw that we interpret the image um there's there's a lot of there's an awful lot of direct perception going on um but there's we it's it, it's always amazing what, what things we have to learn how to see um and so some of the most interesting um studies were done with with people who were uh, were blind from from birth and then have their their sight restored to them typically it's something like a cataract type of operation and there's there's a bunch of things that just seem so counterintuitive. Like, for example, you, you have to learn which of two sticks is longer. Um, you can't tell just by looking at them if you've been blind from birth. You actually have to reach out. And there's an integration of, of systems that's going on. And I think that pattern is quite general. You have to integrate your visual system with your, your motor feedback system. And that would go, all right, so that's what longer means in my visual field. But until you've done that, you, it, it doesn't work. And there's a lot of things like that. Was that um, like the color uh, blue had to be learned over time? Um, I, as far as we know, as far as we know, um, you, you stick sort of dummies in babies' mouths and get them measure their sucking rates and measure how interested they are in different things. They seem to be able to discriminate colours pretty much off uh, out of the uh, out of the gate. Um, I mean, unless they've got some kind of colour blindness or something, they seem to be able to disc- that, that that kind of discrimination seems to be uh, pretty much built in. But of course, the actual words for colours they they vary enormously. So there are some cultures where they have two colour words. And if they do, then I can't remember what they are off the top of my head. Um, but the, if, if they have two color words, then it's always light and dark, black and white. If they have three color words, then the next one's always red. If they have four, I think the next one's always blue. Uh, if they have five um, or six color words, then the next one is either yellow or green. And whichever one it is, then the other, then it's the next one is the other way around. Uh, and then it, and then it sort of gets a little bit more random. But if you start thinking about what color is, it's it's the ability to discriminate certain light wave patterns, and those light wave patterns are often signals of something. So a, a classic signal was was ripening plants. So plants want to tell animals to eat them because they want the animal to take them away and dump the seeds somewhere with a bit of fertilizer attached. So they they signal to the um, the animals they want to do that. And they signal that by, for example, turning red. You know, ripening. Um, so that's a useful discriminant. Um, uh, being able to uh, discriminate certain kinds of green, for example, is really useful if you're living in an area with snakes in it and you know, all that kind of stuff. It's not really my area. I'm, I'm slightly, I'm, I'm just reporting a lot of what other people do here. Okay. How about, um, that made me think of something too. Um, how about genetic memory? Uh, for example, people are afraid of snakes naturally, it seems. Yeah, the, what we seem to have is is a biological preparedness, which is Seligman's term from the 1970s, I think, is when he came up with it. Um, there are certain phobias that are rapidly acquired and very hard to extinguish. So it only takes one or two exposures. Typically, what, what the best thing is, is 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 to get a parental figure going ah, you know, and 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 shouting at you when the thing is near, and that 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 sort of one hit will will make you phobic about it. But the the big five are snakes, rats, spiders. 
uh, what have I done? Snakes, rats, spiders, heights in the dark, um, and all of those things are ancestral threats. Um, and you you wanted to rapidly acquire the the phobia about them. Whereas modern threats like you know climate change or cigarettes or fatty foods, I mean those things were just not threats, and we 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 find it very hard to convince people that they're threats. Now I'm going to take a complete pivot um, and go back sort of to the conf- uh, conflabulation things like that. What are your thoughts about cults? Do they take advantage of that condition or find a way to manipulate people into? Of confabulation? Um, sure. Well, pro- pro- providing people with a coherent story. Uh, if you talk, I've, I've, I've done, got, just done some interviews with people who have left cults um, and we're, we're analyzing the data from that at the moment because I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in this. The What, what happens when suddenly somebody... Uh, has a flip and decides that this isn't uh, for them anymore and they decide to leave something and it's it's fascinating i mean there's no one single pattern that's very obvious that's coming out but there are certain themes that are are coming out and one of the themes is that it's kind of like a family so one of the things that they're providing is something a bit like a family um and that these these people are often missing that so they're often they might be brought up in a cult because the family's a member of it and children just accept the reality that you 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 provide them um but others other people are to some extent rudderless and um life feels meaningless to them and they're at a vulnerable age typically sort of you know late teenagehood or something like that and somebody comes along and and gives them that feeling of familial um belonging and also moral certainty i think a lot of young people really lack a sense of moral certainty and they crave it and uh if somebody comes along and has the right kind of moral certainty the actual details of whether it's a left-wing or right-wing or um you know, feminist or red pillar or you know wh- whatever particular ideology often doesn't really matter so much as the sort of the degree of certainty and the the feeling that you're on the on the right side now you know you can you can confidently um know that you you're you're, you're part of the good team and i think we're very vulnerable to that kind of thing as a species we're very vulnerable to that kind of thing that we're the good guys um rather than looking at individual behavior or individual um intentions which is much harder to do and we're we're much less good at doing that perfect i definitely think that we're going to have an episode on cults specifically so i'm going to pivot just slightly mm-hmm. and you kind sure. of started doing it culture wars and safe spaces your thoughts oh right we we don't really have this in Ireland. Um, the, and the whole concept of a safe space started out as being, I think I'm right in the history of this. It started being a, it was a, an LGBT thing where people who were uncomfortable about being able to talk about their sexuality in a in a public space because uh, they you know quite reasonably feared persecution there'd be certain spaces that would be designated as ones where you could talk about these kinds of things and it, it would anything you said would go no further and and everyone there would be supportive and similarly the you know things like like trigger warnings trigger warnings started out as being something that therapists would sit down with with particular individual clients and work out their triggers um, and work out the kinds of things that would would trigger um, phobic responses or, or PTSD-like responses because they'd experienced trauma. They were never meant to be general things. They were never meant to be sort of the world is generally triggering. Um, you know, I've got I've got colleagues who work in much grimmer fields than I do. You know, with things like, for example, child pornography, child rape, that kind of thing. Mm. And some of my colleagues have. Um, have a, an emotional response to a particular piece of music because a particular piece of music was playing over a particular piece of, uh, of child exploitation video that they were brought in as expert um, consultants to, uh, to 
um, help the police with, you know, and they will they will have an emotional welling up when that thing's playing because they know what they were seeing the last time that music was playing. That's a trigger warning. You know, that would be a trigger for those people. But that's not a you know, that's a very, very individual thing. It's not meant to be a general thing. It's not meant to be a kind of the world is triggering you. Um, it's meant to be something you work out on an individual level with a, with a therapist. And then for, for a bunch of reasons that I'm not quite sure about, these concepts which were sort of quasi-therapeutic concepts have been weaponized and turned into weapons in the culture wars to, to, to beat each other with. And uh, it's not that was never what they were intended for. don't know if that's helpful. <laughs> no, it, it is helpful. And it's good to hear that it's not as prevalent in Ireland. And I don't think it's on every campus let's say here in the states I, I think some are probably worse than others and i don't know if you've looked into the data at all it seems like the more protected or wealthy the baseline almost the worse it is yes um that's so interesting this this is john john height stuff isn't it he's um he spoke um Oh, is it Greg Lukianoff? He did a did a book with the the coddling of the American mind. Was mm-hmm. uh, I think that's his, that's his book. Uh, his his suggestion is that um, because we uh, we were been highly protective of of children, there was there was a spate of things like child abductions, wasn't there? I think in the in the seventies, yeah. um, and this led to some very very protective over parenting. Kids weren't playing in the streets. They weren't playing in <clears throat> in um, sort of unsupervised play with one another, and that that probably has bad effects. I think his idea is that that's that's led to a sort of developmental retardation um, of so that people are not going through some of those uh, developmental stages that they. They, they, they would otherwise go through and they're, they're seeking sort of parental figures as they go into university i mean it's, it's a tricky but to some extent to some extent university's always been about providing parental like figures in a way because it's it's about that kind of extending of childhood into a into a i, I remember my first i remember one of the, the most important things for me about university was not specific things that i i learned it was having very smart very informed people patiently take apart my dumb ideas like an engine on the uh, like when somebody takes an engine apart on the lawn into components and they would they, they took my ideas apart into little pieces and go okay, well that's rubbish and that's cr-. And nicely i mean politely but firmly you know well that's why that's rubbish that's why that's garbage you know, that's why well you can't think that if you also think that and all that i mean that's an incredibly powerful experience and if for no other reason, I mean, everyone should go through that experience because it, it's um, it's like doing it's like, you know, like doing uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu or mixed martial arts. It's one of those things where you it's very humbling. You know, you, you get taken apart by people half your size on the judo mat. It's very good for people. <laughs> people would be a lot less obnoxious and arrogant if they realized uh, what, what some of the consequences could be. And you, you find that people who do a bit of Jiu Jitsu and do a bit of rolling tend not to have that kind of obnoxiousness because they're they're just aware of how fragile things are they're aware of just how how easy it is to lose in a fight and i think the same thing is true when it comes to intellectual things if you've had your ideas taken apart by that you start getting this sense that you have to be a little bit careful about being really too certain about stuff because there are so many components that you, you could have gone wrong with there are so many bits you go, well i could have made a mistake there or this bit of data might not be what i thought it was or there are other interpretations of this and it it leads to a certain amount of uh, of cautiousness i think um which is why typically scientists do sound cautious i think um and why often when they get off their topic they can this is why one of the reasons why i'm uncomfortable talking about things that aren't really my field because i'm very aware of the fact i could make a complete fool of myself
himself uh, and and a colleague could be sitting there going well you know he hasn't kept up to date with the latest papers on this you know, otherwise <laughs> he wouldn't be saying something. and they, they they they'd be right you know because you can't keep up with every single field it's just not possible i uh in i think somebody worked out the other day that in in the field of genetics it is now literally impossible to read at a normal adult reading rate and, and be able to keep up with all the papers that are being published in just uh, in there and in, in genetics you just can't do it it can't be done um you, you know not in eat and sleep and all the rest of it so you have to take a certain amount of things on trust so an awful lot of uh, what's happening with knowledge at the moment is is about is becoming a questionable who are the people that you trust to feed you things and that is um there's always been quite a lot of that but it's become very difficult now to keep up with a lot of things and a lot of it and culture wars, of course, makes is all about that, isn't it? A culture war is all about do I basically trust these people and basically mistrust these other people? You know, other othering, I think you called it earlier. Um, and we're, we're getting some very divisive. You know, for example, we've got people there, there are people opining about climate change. And quite often I get asked my opinion I'm, and I'm something sort of I'm not entitled to an opinion on this. You know, I, I, I'm. I know about how science works and I know about how you sort of multiply converging lines of evidence give a, a sort of consensus, but that any one of those things could be challenged. I mean, that's how it is all, all over. But the idea that somebody from outside could come along and go, well, I challenge climate change. You sort of go, what? Why? I mean, who on earth do you think you are to have an opinion about this? Have you, have you studied it for like six or seven years? You know, have you published anything on it? Have you been to conferences about it? And the answer is almost certainly no. Well, unless that, unless you've done those things, why on earth are you even thinking you ought to have an opinion about it? I, you know, the only answer can be because, well, my side has an opinion on it. But that's that's a ridiculous thing to think. Does that make sense? <laughs> Absolutely. Are you getting concerned, though? Um, I, I feel like um, the sides are polarizing and hardening at this point. Um, we're not killing each other. <laughs> um, yeah. I, you know, I come from a country where, <laughs> uh, in the 17th century, we, we killed, I think it was 11% of the population um in a very very big war and an awful lot of what we're seeing in politics now i live in ireland at the moment right and the the oats bill from the what we called the english civil war well it wasn't just it wasn't just located in england um, oliver cromwell was a was a fairly prominent figure over here in ireland and and his 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 uh his, his legacy is not exactly a benign one um but there was a there were an awful lot of um fudges and um concessions and um things where we thought well we're, we're, we're sick of killing each other let's come up with some way of not killing each other and an awful lot of british politics is around that isn't it it's it's stuff where if you pull on the thread too hard it will unravel you know, well, you know are we a monarchy or are we are we parliamentary well we're kind of both you know we've got the the, the monarchy in parliament which isn't really logical. You know, are we Catholic or are we Protestant? Well, we're kind of both. You know, we've got the Church of England, which has got high church and low church. Everyone knows that that is basically Catholic and Protestant, just no one says it. Uh, but if you know, any of those kinds of fudges can fall apart, they're quite fragile. And we are looking at them potentially falling apart now um, because things like English nationalism has reasserted itself. Scottish nationalism has reasserted itself. I mean, nationalisms tend to feed off each other, don't they? If one bunch of people says, well, we think we're better because we've come from here, well, another bunch of people will, will tend to go, well, we think we're better because we come from another place. And that's, that's not a... It's not a recipe for getting on terribly well with one another. And we're seeing some of that happening. Is that, is that what you mean by, by diversity? I mean, I'm, I'm, sure. I don't really know how it's... And it's a good America. point. Um, you're talking about the troubles, I'm guessing. I think it's called that. That's about 
Yeah, and part of it was uh, was uh, was resulted in we, we there were a bunch of Protestants living in a basically Catholic country, um, and uh, that's 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 what Northern Ireland is. It's, it's got a it's got a large chunk of Protestants living in it, and that's always been fraught. Um, it's always been difficult to get on with. For the last twenty years, we've had a thing called the Good Friday Agreement, which is another sort of you know fudge, which is very typical in these islands, where the people who want a, a united Ireland can feel it is a united island because they go across the borders quite easily and the people who um, don't want a united island still feel part of the uk because there's there's sort of nothing preventing them going backwards and forwards to the uk it's not been a perfect solution far from it but the the death rate went down considerably Do you know actually m- more people have died by suicide in northern ireland since um the end of the troubles and actually happened during the troubles really why is that uh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, is it that a sense of identity was to some extent lost um, because because a sort of common enemy was was removed? I don't know. It's, it's something that we'd be really interested in looking into. And I've, I've got I know people who are looking into it um, in uh, uh, up in Belfast because it's a very striking fact. Um, and once again, we're sort of scratching our heads over how to make sense of some of these things. That makes and nobody wants. I guess that sort of makes an intuitive sense that they had a sense of identity through the otherism. It does. It's a very powerful thing, isn't it? Is, is feeling that um, you're better than these people. Um, and I think America's going through. Yeah. Um, yes. And I mean, a lot of it boils down to families, doesn't it? Uh, a lot of these things recreate family dynamics. So you think of the kind of language that's used. It's often, um, you know, it's often the language of the family, the fatherland, the motherland, band of brothers. Um, a lot of a lot of uh, things like the military and religious groups uh, seem to be seem to be self-consciously picking language that evokes those kinds of familial mechanisms, you know, comrades, all that kind of stuff. And it's um, we, we we know that, for example, I mean, let's let's let's, let's take a an area which I actually study directly. So the the effect of uh, ox, oxytocin. So everyone thinks oxytocin um, oxytocin is is produced during orgasm. It makes you feel nice, sort of nice and floaty, and everyone. Uh, well, a lot of people have reported it as a feel-good chemical and sort of a cuddle chemical, and all these kind of things, and that's kind of true. But it's not that simple. Um, we we know, for example, its its primary function is is lactation. So that's that's what makes us animals is is you know, um, producing producing milk. What what Greg Cochran calls we're vampires, um, in his, his memorable word, um, and that's what makes mammals and oxytocin is that's that's what it evolved to do it evolved to, to to produce milk but it also produces those those floaty feelings of trust and closeness but the interesting thing is that um breastfeeding mothers are more um inclined to to be nasty to people who they think are a threat than non-breastfeeding mothers mm. so oxytocin isn't just a sort of feel good about everybody it's a feel particularly good about your own lot but protective i mean you know any, anyone who anyone is foolish enough to get between a, a mother bear and her cubs you know would would, would rapidly learn that that their mother uh, mothering feelings don't extend to everybody um you know if you if you if you get in the way of that particular diet you're going to get munched and that that seems to be quite general you know that we, we can feel particular closeness to others but often that can come at an exclusive it, it can come at the, the price of an exclusivity um and there's other, there's other chemicals that don't cause that um serotonin seems to be more sort of more inclusive people who take um uh, mdma tend to get a very a very much more inclusive kind of feeling of, of oneness with everybody but uh, but oxytocin certainly doesn't it's very interesting do you um ever look into body language or study that type of thing um i was um sorry go on. no i was i was reading that um 
women, you know, like one of the particular tells that women feel uncomfortable is they'll touch their their throat area, play with jewelry, (laughs) things things like that. But Mm -hmm. pregnant women will go neck and then belly. Oh, right. I've never heard that. That's that's interesting. So it's what it's a, some level that like like sort of touching your wallet when whenever someone um, there, there's a poster saying, you know, warning of pickpockets, pickpockets hang around those, don't they? Because they they're aware that if you warn people about pickpockets, they'll all touch their wallet. So you get to know where their wallet is. <laughs> oh, good that point. Kind of stuff. Never thought of that. Um, so that's maybe a, there's that's a, a cobra effect in that in a weird sense. A cobra effect. Go on. Uh, a cobra effect is when they had a problem with cobras in India. So they put up a bounty, and the um, Indians uh, said, oh, cool, and they start breeding cobras to get the bounty. Right. <laughs> yes. You learn, <laughs> that's happened a few times, hasn't it? Um, uh, I, I suspect a lot of the, the, the folk tales about um, uh, rescuing people from rats, you know, some Pied Piper kind of stories. I think there's there's, there's probably quite a few rat breeding operations that we're in. That we, we may, as, as a species, we can get in our own way, can't we, to a tremendous degree by by failing. Is it, is it Thomas Sowell, isn't it, the economist? And I think um, one of the things he points out is that there's a very big difference between your goals and your incentives. You know, anyone can say, oh, well, I want, you know, what do you want? Well, obviously, liberty and equality and all the rest of it. And we all want those things like we want mom and apple pie. But what exactly are you incentivizing? That's really the crucial question. And so, so in the case of cobras, where you're you're incentivizing cobra really. Well, perfect. And to incentivize everybody to come back, let's go and wrap it up now. And I look forward to our next conversation. I think we need to talk about female orgasms and porn mm-hmm. and other such topics if you're up for it uh, this this is what i publish on mostly so I'm much i'm much more comfortable talking on the on the topics where i'm uh i'm, I'm actually in the peer-reviewed literature myself and um yeah you, you, uh, the 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 I'm, I'm working on the the final few chapters of the book um and i'm hoping it's out sometime in the middle of next year so yeah all and, we, and we've got some really interesting news about the orgasm research as well uh, our findings were confirmed by uh oh, sorry our predictions were confirmed by uh, an ivf clinic in the czech republic and we're hoping to do some work with them and we're kind of excited about that fantastic now in the meantime where can people find you um so um my i've got a, a blog which is probably the easiest thing to find me on uh which is uh, hive mind uh on psychology today i i try and always answer people who, who access me on that i um i'm emailable of course i i don't maintain a twitter um i've got a twitter account just in case anyone wanted to find me on twitter but i don't tweet on it because i i just I, I i'm not convinced that it's benefit uh, i'm not convinced that contributing to twitter is, is a bit i i'm i remain to be convinced i have friends and colleagues who do it and they seem to have a great time at it uh i look at it and i think this this has the potential for being a terrific way of sharing things but it also has the potential for a terrific way of sharing misunderstandings or or half truths or um and I, I i worry about this is just something about the format that it's it's so I suppose its strength is it's, it's asking people to share things without having really thought them through. But the downside, people share things without having thought them through and they're then enshrined in stone and they're decontextualized as well. So an awful lot of our behavior is contextual, isn't it? You know, you, you, you go off to a club for night and you, you get a bit worse for wear and you, you come back and you, you run into your um, 
uh, you know, your mom or your priest on the way back and suddenly your behavior changes because it's, it's high, you know, what seemed funny a few minutes ago suddenly isn't funny now. Well, if we, we, we've taken an awful lot of our behaviors and we've just thrown them uh, completely out of context. And, you know, there's the cliched phrase, oh, it's quoting somebody out of context. But this has gone way beyond just the usual quoting someone out of context. This is almost... Uh, requiring us to see each other out of context. It's like we've got cameras, you know, in the toilet and the bedroom uh, and the workroom and uh, and the party. You know, and all of these things are being shared on a more or less 24-hour basis. And we're not the same creatures when we're in these different places. And we, we, you think about the number of people you're willing to share all of those spaces with. It's very, very small, really. And yet somehow we're expecting the rest of the world to, to just sort of give us a, give each other enough slack to, to, to put up with potential misunderstandings. And it's, yeah, it's not surprising it's leading to friction. I'm just surprised it doesn't lead to more friction, to be honest. It actually does. And bottom line, <laughs> we're not going to expect a lot of content from you on Twitter, right? <laughs> no, I'm. Uh, I, 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 I stand. I stand by anything I say on the blog. Um, Fantastic. And yeah, and I'm very happy by that. Say, 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 say again. I'm sorry. It's a solid blog. I encourage everyone to check it out. And by the way, check it out because it's a preview of subjects to come. Excellent. Well, thanks very much for that. Well, thank you so much for coming on. That's great to talk to you. <laughs> Now, tonight's adventure into the unknown. Shut up and sit down. Hey, it's Sarge. And Frenzy. From the Sarge Approved Podcast. Uh, if you're not familiar, the Sarge Approved Podcast has a guest every episode. Featuring uh, people like actors, comedians, uh, survival experts, authors, martial arts experts. Basically a whole gamut of badass people. Yes. And you can check out all our episodes on all the podcast platforms, iTunes, Spreaker, uh, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio. Um, yeah. You can check us out on all our social media, Facebook. Instagram, Twitter, all the things. It's all at Sarge Approved. Yep. Check it out, and we hope you enjoy it. Bye.